You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Um, first of all, I'd like to um, acknowledge the traditional owners on the land uh, that we meet today. Um, they're the Yellowcoot Willen um, mob of the Bunmurong people. Uh, personally, uh, being uh, from Sydney, uh, my name is Joel Spring. I'm a Wiradjuri man who grew up in, in uh, Redfern. Uh, I want to pay my respects to the Bunmurong people and their elders, past, present and emerging. Um, sovereignty was never ceded. Uh, that's something that I think is very important to remember when meeting and talking, uh, especially about things that we're going to be talking about today. Um, I'm going to ask the people on the panel to introduce themselves um, as we begin this conversation. Oh, how on- ominous. <laughs> Great. So, Hi everyone, my name is Libby Porter. Um, I too would like to acknowledge country, which is now speaking loudly to us um, as the life force that sustains us, uh, to pay my respects to the elders past, present and future of this place um, for sustaining my life and that of my family. Uh, do we need to say something sensible about our, you know, who we are? Do you want that? Yeah, introduce yourself in terms of... Okay, so I'm a researcher at R- and educator at RMIT University in the Centre for Urban Research. Um, and most of my work is about uh, the uh, relationship between urbanisation as a force of dispossession um, and questions of coming into uh, a sovereign relationship with Indigenous sovereignties. Thank you. Uh, I'm Jeremy McLeod. I'm really white. Uh, and, and when I was invited to come and speak here, I said, I think that you've got the wrong person. And they said, no, I think that you should come. So my last name is McLeod. I thought I was Scottish for a long time. My father told me for a very long time I was Scottish. I've recently got my DNA results back and apparently I'm Irish. So my father will be horrified. Um, I, um, I live and work on Wurundjeri land about three kilometres uh, northwest of here. Um, and I'm here to talk about whatever it is that we can do in our practice. Are you just looking at me through the whole of, of that? Thanks. Um, uh, my name is Sarah Lynn Reese. I'm a Palawa Pling Marina Trollway woman from Tasmania. So my country is the northeast of Tasmania. Uh, and it has close blood and ancestral links with the Bunurong people of the land who we're on today. So the, the family lines split and go in two directions. One's Tasmania and one's Bunurong. I'm not Bunurong. I'm Palawa. Um, be clear about that because sometimes people get confused. I have no right to speak on behalf of this country, neither do any of us here. Um, so a process, I guess, of acknowledging is acknowledging the fact of who we are and where we're from so that you know that we don't have the right to speak on behalf of where we are. We can only speak for what we know um, and for our experiences and where we're from. Um, I don't know why I'm saying all of this now, but I've gone it's straight into facilitator mode. I'm sorry. Totally <laughs> back, fine. To you, back to you, Joe. I appreciate it. Thank you. No. Um, so today... I. I think first, I kind of want to unpack and sort of think about the, the, the name of today's talk and, and sort of frame it from my own perspective. I think the kind of ideas of speculative reciprocity, there's sort of, there's sort of a directionality, I feel like, in both of these words, whether it's about exchange and, or kind of speculation, which sort of has this, this idea of sort of, I think, like a, a forward momentum uh, sort of related to a, a kind of sense of risk um, which I think is a really sort of interesting thing to think about when we talk about sort of settler and, uh, settler relations on sovereign land and sort of what's at risk kind of going forward. I, I think uh, when I first uh, heard about this conversation, it was last year and sort of thinking about some of my own experiences since then, some of the experiences that have kind of gone on um, across the country, I mean, for Indigenous people and settlers alike, the last couple of months, you know, it's been a real one. Um, we've seen a lot of, we've seen a lot of really, I mean, disturbing realities of, 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 of what we've understood were sort of the result of um, unequal and unethical sort of relationships to this country. 
Uh, and so I sort of prepared something to, to frame the conversation uh, for myself. And then I want to sort of lead into some questions and talk about it. So I think the opposite of climate denial might be climate despair. The idea that there's nothing more we can do and it's all too late. The apocalypse is coming, but it'll make some great content. But how do we acknowledge the tragedy of what it means to exist right now? I think one of the advantages of facing the overwhelming and immensity of grief that we feel in relationship to the climate crisis is that once we realize our role we play in it, we realize that it's all one problem and that we have a lot more allies than we thought we did and that if you fight for migrants' rights of freedom of movement, you're fighting climate change. If you fight for the support of indigenous peoples and their right to self-determination, if you support local uh, activist groups and people against carceral systems of police brutality, you're fighting against climate crisis. If you support demilitarization and the nuclear disarmament, it's all connected. It's all one planet. Countries agreeing with you, so... Whoa, it's hailing. Oh well, nobody's going anywhere, are they? They can't. You can't leave now, so we might as well just keep talking. Nobody got an issue with that. Cool. All right, let's keep going. Amazing. Cool. So we've got <laughs> we've got them on our side, I yeah. guess. Um, well, I guess for this, I guess in that sake, what the point I'm trying to get to is that it's. You know, in the face of these things, we need to understand that it's all connected. It's, it's one planet. We're here together. And I think given the, the sort of the irony and the tragedy in, in the conversations that we are now having and are now at the forefront of our minds um, is that indigenous people have been living through their own apocalypse, through the ending of, of, of their experiences, um, their, their cultural ways of... of practice on land and, and many other atrocities that have been done against them for 250 years, I think. It's interesting to kind of frame the word apocalypse because it doesn't actually mean the end of the world. It's a Greek word. It means the revealing of knowledge. Um, so I think that I'd like to go on to say the 10 embassies are seen as here in Australia and in other countries such as Standing Rock, such as the Standing Rock camps in Canada, um, were deliberately organized as spaces for testing out new ways of sustainable living, led by ideas of indigenous philosophy. Rather than preserving an old way of living and offering attempts to create a brand new world, it's not about returning to a pre-industrial lifestyle. I don't want that. Anybody who needs menstrual products or insulin you know, is going to be at disadvantage. But in, rather than not thinking about it and hoping for a perfect technical solution, seriously confronting that the world might end because of the way that we continue to operate and because of climate change is a chance to ask ourselves, what are the good bits, you know? And what are the bits of society that we are kind of comfortable leaving behind? From the arrival of colonists in, 1980, in 1788 until 1830, the productivity and labor of expelled convicts and entrepreneurial freemen was concentrated towards agricultural production and the cultivation of land in Southeast Australia. This dispossession of indigenous peoples and of land was legitimized through the overriding of country with land tenure systems, property laws and resource production that operate with a twofold logic. The introduction of Western techniques by foreign bodies as a structure of is a structure of violence towards indigenous peoples, rendering the foundational actions of settler colonialism conditional upon the elimination of indigenous practices. So Libby. <laughs> These attempts at, at eliminating indigenous land management systems with white colonial ones did not create financially sustainable or e ecologically sustainable systems of land management, did they? No. So I would like to ask 
given the work that you're doing currently and your research and uh, converse off based off of a lot of really interesting conversations that we've had before as well what role uh, does sort of the history of pl and the and the practice of planning in a sort of territorial sense acknowledge I think something's really interesting about territory right is it acknowledges another in its practice right the staking out of a boundary and we're talking about reciprocity here I think there's an interesting kind of insight into that exchange so is there a question there didn't sense one, but um, <laughs> I'm just going to launch off from where you landed. Um, so you started asking about what the what I think the role of planning is in that set of uh, histories and legacies, uh, and I think it's pretty central because um, I guess I think of planning as a uh, as a technology, a kind of regime that. Um, organises space in a particular kind of relation. Um, so it, it uh, you know, in classic planning terms, it organises where the housing goes and where the roads are and, you know, that's the boring bit, uh, except that it's not so boring because at, at underneath that, if you think about what that does, that orders our lives, it structures our lives. Uh, so the building of the city um, and the, the laying out of... Uh, of that, the expression of that regime is one of the central tools of the, the, the ongoing act of dispossession um, in a settler colony. There's kind of no way of getting a, away from that. Once you've, I think, held that particular mirror up to the practice of planning, you can't unsee it. I don't, well, I can't unsee it. So, um, so I think that's tremendously important. Um, and I think one of the interesting um, moments that we might have uh, in this contemporary moment, and I think you put it really, you framed it really beautifully, Joel, as you always do, uh, is, is kind of speaks to the core question of what planning thinks it's all about, even though it often isn't, which is sustainability, right? So I teach in a planning course at RMIT and we're constantly talking about sustainability, um, but always skirting around the deep political question that sits underneath the question of sustainability, which is what did, have we decided that is worth sustaining? And for whom? Who, who gets to say? So those questions get kind of stripped away um, and so and that starts to reveal how uh, kind of assumptions about sustainability and planning and property and the city and all those things uh, do the work of obscuring and erasing uh, and not sustaining that which has always been here, Indigenous sovereignty. And in a sense, sustaining the system in which it's, we've sort of built a financial model off of keeping the city, you know, the city as, the, as an apparatus for capitalism. You know, I think there's something kind of inherently built into Australia's history and it's, and it's kind of its, its settlement and then its, and then its uh, urbanization, which is inherently uh, punitive, inherently controlling. You know, it's the, I see, I see, I think modern urban practices today are ones of governance through control of the political plastic, right? And I think Australia has always been that in its sense. It's, it's, it, there is not a heritage that the settlers came and arrived that, thought, that they thought was worth preserving, but it was controlling in this way. So I think what I guess I'm interested in kind of these ideas of what, what we know the mirror that we've held up and the way that we read planning and the, the built environment in general as in some ways, and personally for me at times, irredeemable uh, when it comes to uh, riding over and extinguishing country. What avenues are there now, at least that you might be exploring, to shift those balances or have a financial conversation with sovereignty? Yeah, indigenous sovereignty. Um, 
So I think there's maybe two ways of thinking about this, two, almost two answers. Um, and uh, one is the kind of mainstream answer, right, which is we have, uh, we have tools of government that can do certain things. So we have systems in place like the Aboriginal Heritage Act or, um, I don't know, other, other kinds of instruments that we use to manage uh, and I would, I would argue deeply constrain and indeed undermine uh, what should be a relationship of sovereignty. So I don't think any of those are, are tools that are really functioning, but they're there. Um, and they can actually be a little bit useful sometimes in sort of like prizing open something, like wedging something so that you can see another, another thing behind it um, and another conversation becomes possible. So in some of my work, we've been thinking about that as uh, like prizing open a, a contact zone, an ability to at least have a conversation uh, to start that. So that's kind of useful. Um, but I think that if we rest there, then we miss a, big, a bigger question and a bigger set of responsibilities, um, uh, particularly around the financial question, because of course, you know, we look around us and we see you know, how much wealth is generated from country. Um, and, and not, just, uh, not, not just the kind of financial wealth that spins off from that, but the actual like, extraction of the actual wealth of country. If you think of country as the, the hail that's falling around us and the, and the soil that we're sitting on, I mean, that, all of this structure is built from country. It's all a material artefact of, of somebody's country. Um, in everything that we touch, it, it, we just can't un undo ourselves from it, right? So we're literally surrounded by country holding us up in these ways and we have no conversation, no language for being able to think through what that means. How do we recognise that as the wealth of country that's delivering us um, our lifestyles, our lives? Um, and that's a much bigger question. Mm, it's like, a, you know, it's this material artefact that's yeah. like precipitate. Yeah. Of conflict, extruded up, right? That exists <laughs> as 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 the framework that we move through together. I think that's really. I think we've also had some. We've also spoken before. I think about where these opportunities are, right? In in these frameworks. So in in terms of your own research, there you've looked at some alternatives or some different measures in which you think about the governance of space, the planning, the planning logics. Uh, so could you talk to us a little bit about some of that yeah, that you've sure. done as well? I can see you're poking me constantly towards a more specific answer. So good work. Um, who can get the academic to say something real? You know, see if you can do that, Joel. <laughs> Keep trying. Um, so uh, one, let me answer really specifically. There is a clause in the Local Government Act in Victoria, this is a really specific answer, that says that a local council uh, can enable private landowners to pay uh, through the rate system a uh, kind of fee, if you like, an extra bit of rates to the council who holds it as the you know, collective governing body of that area, of that territory. Um, and uses it for public good. It's only ever been used for um, conservation purposes, so for like biodiversity projects or land um, management kinds of stuff. But there is nothing in the Act that says that it couldn't be used for all sorts of other purposes. So we actually have inbuilt in our legislation today a small mechanism that would enable uh, a conversation about the role of our closest government to us, our local councils, with private landowners whose private land owning owningness <laughs> and, and wealth is derived from the original and ongoing dispossession of the, the people of that country, um, to think about what that might then generate. How, how could that be used for some other purpose? Um, so we might think that about that as a, a pay the rent kind of idea. Um, operationalising that concept. Um, so that's one of the things that I've been trying to work on. So pay the rent is this, you know, is an enduring call um, from Indigenous leaders from such as Gary Foley and Jenny Munro and Robbie Thorpe and Lydia Thorpe. Uh, essentially for white Australia to pay for the rent on the land in which they stole. 
uh, and took illegally. And within the international context, reparations isn't new. It's not, it's not something that isn't heard of. It's, it's practiced in many different um, democracies across the world uh, to some capacity. And it's, you know, it goes from an idea of an economic assessment of damages. Uh, but I think there's something to contend with when we talk about this, right? So when I, when we thought, when we try to think about how something can be um, commodified, I think we run the risk of it being co-opted as well as, um, as well as, it's another C word, I just lost it. Um, as, as well as being counterfeited. Uh, and I think, I think that's, that's, the real, that's the real conversation here for me. When I think of a conversation about speculative reciprocity, uh, personally, I, I hear my grandparents, you know, I hear my, I hear my family asking for pay the rent in Redfern. I, I, I thought personally um, leading into this, I was like, what do I know what to talk about? here you know and and i and i remember this in a i sit in a i i practice in some capacity architecture i'm an architecture student i don't identify as as an architect or in any way want to uh but i'm very like critical of it and i think it's really interesting place to have conversations that are really important to me um i grew up in redfern uh I grew up on the block, I went to Marowina, I kind of am a product of the Aboriginal services that were fought for um, by the kind of leading charge of the uh, Aboriginal mothers and Aboriginal activists in um, Redfern in the 60s. And we have now seen that rapidly um, shift uh, through forces of um, juridical and, and governance perspectives, um, kind of pulling money out of um, what the land the government see sees as it, its own. And then the uh, ongoing gentrification and, and, and uplift that you see in, in that process. Uh, and so pay the rent has something that I, I has resonated with me throughout my whole life as, as, a, as a talking point and, and what it could really mean and, and some interesting conversations. So, Jeremy, we both spoke at the um, architecture conference last year um, here and just over there. And um, we both had... I, alongside Genevieve Murray, who I work with, um, with Future Method, uh, and, and as well as you, we, we both got up and had um, something to say about these ideas of paying the rent. So, if for anyone who wasn't here, could you first describe sort of what you spoke about that day, and then we'll go deeper into it. Yeah, firstly, I, I do identify as, a, as an architect, <laughs> a recovering architect. Um, and the interesting thing for me is, you know, I work in the planning system all the time. And when I lodge a planning application, uh, I have to write down who the owner of the land is. <laughs> it's pretty interesting, right? And so to find out who the owner of the land is, you order a title. And you get a copy of the title. And it says, Antonio Guderetri, um, gentleman. That's his, that's his job. He's a gentleman. And it says when he purchased the land. And it says when he purchased the price of the land. And so we've just recently embarked on a project, Nightingale Village. And um, the combined sites that we purchased for Nightingale Village uh, were purchased in the 70s and 80s for about, um, about $9,000. We just paid $18.5 million for that land. And, um, and that vendor, who's not the actual owner, <laughs> um, well, not the traditional owner, just got an $18.5 million uplift from doing nothing more than holding that land and doing nothing really with it to actually benefit the community. It's pretty interesting. Then the council, through the planning process, asks us to um, pass the planning application to referral authorities. So uh, Yarra Valley Water want to know um, how high the water level is going to be close to our building. Um, City Power want to know whether we're building close to their power lines. Um, the Department of Transport and VicTrack want to know what we're doing close to the train lines. And Metro, who is a private corporation uh, who runs trains, want to make sure that you know, we're not going to do anything to interrupt their service. And then they have a right as a referral authority to curtail how we build this future housing. 
as a private corporation. But at no point through any of that are we asked to send it to the traditional owners, the Wurundjeri, whose land we're actually building on. Then we're asked to pay a de development contributions levy to the council. We're asked to pay rates on the site. We're asked to pay an open space levy. We're asked to pay a building permit levy. And now we're asked to pay a flammable cladding levy because of a bunch of fuckwits clad a whole bunch of buildings with a Luca bond, which is two pieces of aluminium and magnesium with petrol in between it, which can never be recycled. So, and, and through none of that, are we asked to pay a levy to the traditional owners. So, um, it seems odd to me that, uh, that, that my role as an architect in this city has changed from uh, building buildings that you look at and that you engage in to instead becoming what I think is perhaps more important, which is becoming an advocate for the people that live in the city, an advocate for the planet that we live on. And so through all of that, we kind of look at our role through an ethical way and we say, how do we, how do we build a building that doesn't add carbon to the atmosphere? How do we build a building that actually uh, adds to the community and helps people? And how do we do that within this existing system? And so the problem is that this system, this planning system, this financial system, it's like time, right? It doesn't really exist, but we accept that it exists. We accept that this is, these are the rules that we play by, and we accept that some guy came out here in, you know, whatever it was, 1915, uh, measured a, a parcel of land in Brunswick and put his name on it, and then for some reason it's determined ever more that he owns that land. I don't think we should necessarily accept that system, but I operate within that system and we spend our time trying to hack that system. So how do we do right within that system? So the interesting thing is that what I've found is I've, I've tried to do that as an architect and I've really struggled. And so through Nightingale Housing, what we've been doing is there's this interesting thing called owner's corporation rules, right? And the owner's corporation rules set out a constitution for the building that you're about to build and a constitution for the people that are going to live in there. And um, you can write whatever the fuck you want in it. And so we simply wrote that perhaps every resident should do the thing that you would do if you were, if you were living on anyone's land, which is pay the rent. So I don't see it as reparations, Joel. I see it as just the right thing to do. So if you live in a Nightingale building, you come in and you understand that you'll be paying the rent. So come and pay the rent or don't, it's okay. There's over 10,000 people on the waiting list at the moment. I think that's, I think it's very, it's very true, like speaking to that relationship of this isn't a reparative, this isn't a reparation process. This is what we need to understand is like, that those, those processes are not ours to engage in personally. Um, but collectively, we can have a conversation about the redistribution of wealth and how that is important. I think, I think what you touched on at the beginning of, the, of that point was really, really interesting and sort of what I found I'm much more interested in, right, is, is the, the kind of the immaterial processes, the immaterial outcomes, the designing of immaterial things like the documents that dictate how we do this work. Uh, because that's why they're there. It's not, you know, and, 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 it's, and it limits the things. But we're also all in, embedded to some extent in a discipline that deals with real shit, you know, real stuff, real objects that do a thing. Right? And, and thinking of those windows in which there is maybe not the ability for you to apply yourself to the real thing, but it, it, to design those documents and help design these moments in which we can inform these systems or inform these moments to create something else. And I think you know, that the objects are sort of the outcome socially of the things that we care about. And I don't think that our cities reflect what maybe a lot of us care about because it is a very, you know, like you said, a very financialized kind of dislodged system. Um, so in terms of... In terms of Nightingale Villages, what, what, have you, what processes have you gone through since that initial um, sort of brief uh, 
acknowledgement of paying the rent at the conference to today in, t in, in terms of the conversation and how you start that with the, with the development of the building? Yeah, so I think the interesting thing is that we've spoken to... Um, we've spoken to First Nations peoples about what to do with the money. And the one thing that we don't know what to do is what to do with the money. So that's an ongoing conversation. So I'm happy to act as, you know, um, as a collector of the monies, but I don't know how the money gets spent. And so there'll be someone else that will be established to do that, who knows where it should be spent. Um, our preference at Nightingale Housing is clearly that it should be on housing and land for First Nations peoples. Um, but it's a big, complex conversation that I have no idea how to answer, and it's ongoing. No, no, yeah. It's a, I think kind of going back to the earlier point of this, like when, when these things become commodified, they are prone for this sort of counterfeit or kind of this push, right? And it, and it, and it, can, it can become really difficult, I think, as a, as a group of people, as a, as a system and, and settlers especially, to be able to um, hear the authentic voices, see the authentic voices and see, and it's actually, for me, I find the project is about more than just the architecture, right? And it's about in, in, in informing the community, building, it's a, this agenda is like, it's a battle for hearts and minds, right? It's like a cultural thing. Like we're doing, the, we, have to, we have to shift a culture and before I think our buildings can reflect it in a way. So. I probably have some more questions to ask you about the money, but I want to talk to Sarah too. And I think what I really, I think, admire about you, Sarah, and I, th I find so interesting is you're always up to talk about the thing and up to talk about the next thing. I, f I'm, I, I really think your approach to the way that you work in practice and the way that you work generally um, is sort of meeting each opportunity in this way that I, I think is really interesting. Um, so as an Indigenous woman working in the built environment, I, I, I want to know from your perspective and like, absolutely, I mean, this is recorded so maybe you don't want to bitch about it heaps, but like, you like kind of go into how on the daily or, or, or what it is that you kind of see as important as in, in embedding these ideas for yourself personally as an Aboriginal person. In terms of speculative reciprocity, or in terms of reciprocity, I, I mean, in, in my mind, I mean, I'll just, I'll, yeah, I'll do what you did, go. Um, in my mind, reciprocity is more than the financial. Like, so what, that's one huge aspect of it, and it's crucially important because in this society, money empowers people to do things their way. Um, and so that in itself is a really important goal. But also, there, there's so many things that we can do in practice that don't necessarily require, I mean, there's reciprocity with country. There's this notion that every project we do can be an act of repair. It can be something that gives back to the country, not just financial to people. And I think it's like that understanding comes when you understand that country is not just the land and country is not just the sky and it's not just the water. Actually, people are part of country and animals are part of country and the way that the wind works and all these sort of things are all part of country. And so quite literally everything we do has some form of impact where we order our materials from... Um, it's not just about the carbon emissions or the miles or all those things, which are all crucially important and they're metrics that are in place to keep us in check, which are great. Um, but there's, there's more than that. There's an ethic to it that's about uh, responsibility of place, if that makes sense. Um, and so in terms of what I... Like, I'm really excited. I don't know how anybody else feels because there's so many times when you talk about these conversations and you're just like, oh, my God, it's so hard. How do you do it? But then at the end of the day, it's like... If, I'd go crazy if we had to do every project perfectly. Like, you just can't. And like, especially, I guess, the challenge, if we go back to the, co the question about every day or like the daily grind or what does that mean, is that every day I'm thinking, okay, this project, like the traditional learner engagement's coming too late. So automatically that's against protocol. So what are we gonna do? How can we still make the most of it and how, but in still acknowledging that this protocol hasn't been done properly? Okay, we have this conversation. But then at the end of the day, you might have a, an outcome that has benefited the community in some way. And so even the, f the fact that that protocol didn't work in the way it should have, you still have some form of reciprocity. And sometimes, um, and like ultimately, like one change in each project makes me feel like we've achieved something. Because over time, that means we can 
because we live in an evidence-based society, um, we, you can prove that actions that you've taken have positive benefits. So in terms of beating the system or hacking the system, it's effectively like going, okay, we did it this way once in this project and this was a successful outcome. So we should obviously, that demonstrates value to our next client, so we should do it that way again. So it is a very Western systems uh, way of thinking about how to hack the system, but sometimes you've just got to do it, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yes, every, every day is a, a, a fun little roller coaster. Um, but it, it's interesting, right? Like, it, we're, we're really are at a turning point where so many people are listening, but they don't know what to do. And, like, there's beautiful moments where, like, everyone is coming around. Like, you're, you sent, Jeremy sent out this email. Uh, you've probably seen it. But Jeremy sent out this email to us all going, okay, we have to act on this now. Here are these Instagram posts. This is what we're doing. These are the three actions that we're taking. And... How many practices signed on to be a part of that? So, um, does anyone here work at a practice going carbon neutral this year? Okay. Oh, Maybe okay. I'm assuming that everyone's architects. Can I, can I see who's architects here? Oh, not that many. Okay, so everyone else, go carbon neutral this year. It's just <laughs> not that hard. So we put out a post saying go carbon neutral. Here are the three simple steps to do. And um, within two weeks, there were 550 practices. And some of them, were, you know, practices like... John Wardle, ARM, like, you know, big people with, big, with lots of employees. And so the idea was that we break it down to simple steps. You know, it's not perfect, far from perfect, but it's simple. And this is the point. It's effectively, you need, we need to find ways because we effectively, well, at least I see my role as a translator between traditional owners and cultural understandings of place yep. to architecture. That is my role. Yep. And so what I need to do or what I feel like I'm charged with doing is going, okay, how can we simplify something that is very complex and translate it into a language that can be understood enough so that people over here get just get just a little bit of a foot in the door and then once they're in it, they go, oh, okay, I see. It's just like part of this much larger system and that's how it goes. But what is that? How can you make this relate to that in the simple step that makes it seem easy for people mm. that then once they do it, they go, oh, great, cool. Yep. Why didn't we do it like this all the time? Yeah. Um, but that in itself, I think, is a form of reciprocity because that's, that's, that's what, like, it's a form of translation, but it's, you've got to have the translator. And so I guess my role is the translator in reciprocity. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. I rambled for a little bit. No, thank you. I think it's important. I think, I think what's interesting about that kind of active translation and sort of the next, you know, the, the things that we create or the things that the projects we push for, the they uh, buildings like exist for time, right? Like they, once they're built, they're there. Those those time frames are shortening, but hopefully they get longer again. You know, and you know everything else has changed. Traditions change, cultures change, attitudes change towards these things. So it's like, how are we thinking about supporting these networks so these things can uh, facilitate? maybe these idealistic kind of avenues, you know, these things going forward of something that is more inclusive of, you know, inclusive in every sense, in, 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 in not, just, not just in relationship to one or two key points that you've put on something, but kind of going further into it and thinking about what a, what a place looks like when this is more commonplace, what a, what a city looks like when it's responsive in this way. And, you know, I think we speak about this quite often and it's an experience that I feel like a lot of indigenous people who live in urban environments kind of feel, right, is that there is a, there's a sort of denial uh, in, with the city. There's this sort of, this, I think you were talking, we were talking about it as sort of the city sort of trying to actualize this 100% colonized level, you know? Oh, globalization. Um, exactly, you know? Everything looks like McDonald's. Mm, yeah. mm. And it's sort of this purest state of like the colonial idea of like this is just us. There's no, there was no one here before, uh, and and the sort of how that undermines and sort of frames you know indigenous expression, indigenous culture as inauthentic in these spaces. So sort of framing how we think about time, mm. designing for time, designing for the change that I'm excited for because it's, I mean, it's one or the other. Like, <laughs> yeah, and. Um, you know, we've kind of seen today as well as, you know, the last couple of months that, like, we've got to do a lot more 
with with what we've got right now. Otherwise, things are going to get a lot worse. Um, it's also fun to look at how you can shift that perspective slightly in the sense that where if you're lo talking about hacking the system in a Western system, we're talking about tourism, right? And we want to be this place that is multicultural, that is Melbourne, what is Melbourne, coffee, art, blah, blah. What is actually Melbourne and how can that be shown in our built environment and in our homes and the way that we interact with place and how can we learn from cultural knowledge and make that inform our lives so that everybody's lives are better? But like, how do you break that down into little steps that people can take on in a way that's not overwhelming? Um, I think I can't remember exactly the quote, but one of the speakers at the conference was talking about decolonize, well, in effect, decolonization. But she said, to decolonize, you have to be willing to give up some of your own privilege. And so, in order to like, what the question really is, what are you willing to give up? Um, because if you're willing to give up time, if you're willing to give up money, if you're willing to give up all of these things, then that is how you can act in this sense in terms of reciprocity. But it's never going to be the same thing for everyone. But there's got to be something for everyone. Yeah, I, I often grapple with this myself as well, sort of thinking directly about, you know, how you affect in, in essence sort of change in communities, be that like with students or people that you're teaching or people that you're talking to and um, other things around indigenous issues, but not just indigenous issues, you know, everything that's built into that and, and sort of the idea of like accountability as like a process that I think we are prone and I, like our built environment pushes us to be less accountable to those around us. Uh, I think private, you know, the kind of objectification of land as a process is one of um, one that pu pulls pulls accountability away um, and 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 pu puts it onto you know yourself to provide for yourself, and therefore this kind of undermines what a community could be, undermines what a community could do uh, in lots of ways. And I guess I'm interested with that framework going forward off of. Um, the back of the sort of Nightingale Villages idea of, you know, the, the, the I thinking about procurement as, as maybe uh, an, an outcome for um, this money uh, in one way or another. In housing, like, effectively, like, where is there, is there a process in there in which Aboriginal housing is kind of a f not not just the forefront goal of like pay the rent, but like the forefront goal of Nightingale, you know, within the current fabric, you know, where is an Aboriginal person who lives in the city reflected in your projects in a way, you know, because uh, up until, I mean, I'm, I don't know personally at all, because this is my context. So I'm not, I'm not sure if many Aboriginal people are, are living in Nightingale or, or on the list, but uh, I think I would be, I would be interested in your perspective on that and where where immediately like what are the urgencies to you now about that because i think it's good to kind of plan like that's fine but i think there's also like there's an there's there's a responsibility in in what we do and and the urgencies of what is currently at hand for people who don't have access i guess yeah so look the interesting thing is that we have a priority ballot system for um what we call key community contributors. So within that, at the top of that list, is Indigenous, Indigenous Australians. Last year, we balloted 282 apartments and we had one Indigenous Australian take up that ballot place. And so what we're seeing is that the wealth gap, you know, is massively problematic to our balloters. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, back to the, quickly to this idea about, you know, can we, through um, our pay the rent scheme, generate enough money? Absolutely not. You know, what's it mean for the village? It's like $20,000 a year. But what can we do with that? And importantly, we can go to Lend-Lease and Mervac and Stockland and talk to big property developers and say, this is what we do. It doesn't actually cost us, as the housing providers, anything. It doesn't cost Lend-Lease anything to put it in the owner's corporation rules. It doesn't cost Stockland or Mervac anything to put it in the owner's corporation rules. It just gets written in and then the future residents just see that as part of their, part of their contributions back to society that they're, they're required to pay. Um, it, you know, I, I don't know, Joel, I, I feel like that, you know, I, I feel like we can do a lot better. But, you know, I, I just like, I'm a 
simple guy. I just like to do simple things. And then I like those simple things to have scale, to be able to mess with this complex thing out here. What would you do next, Joel? Well... In this context, in the same question, how would you answer that question if it was asked of you? Uh, attending to the urgencies of what I'm currently doing. I will, I mean, I'm working quite hard and, and pushing in a lot of ways, I think, to have these conversations um, in Sydney. I think, uh, like what you said, kind of vaguely, I think it, there's, there's, a mo there's, there's a side of this that is about sort of a societal let's have a conversation about the dwelling in the house and 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 scale it in these operations but i you know like you know at the scale of the climate it's the corporations it's it's the companies it's it's the businesses uh at different scales that have to answer for these things and i think in a lot of senses as well as particularly in gentrification as gentrification operates is off of the back of there is almost this other sort of set of reciprocity within the relationship in um, in gentrification where the sort of the success that's done by the business that's taking up space is off the back of the place that it's in right uh, and uh, be that through property values but also sort of the connotations right and i've watched redfern change a lot recently and so uh myself and some uh, and genevieve and some uh, researchers at university of sydney are working on a project where we're uh, targeting businesses uh directly uh, first and foremost, we're having a conversation to them and, and the immediacy of the crisis, which is spatial. It's, we do not have spaces in Redfern for Aboriginal people to do fuck all. Like, and we're not going to put conditions on what that space is, which is unfortunately the case of places that are provided to Aboriginal people. It's conditional, it's vetted through the police, like it's, it's governed in all these other structures, right? So for us, we, we want to tackle a conversation about that about what immediately can a business provide and then it's it becomes this thing it becomes a conversation culturally it becomes like a how do you make it fucking cool right like how do you make it this thing that scales so that like there's a shop that wants to do it but the you know the ngv wants to do it and obviously you're asking for different sums of money but you're having these conversations and, and to meet the immediacy so hopefully soon we will be kind of trialing a, a, a conversation and a model that is approaching and valuing um, the spaces, uh, particularly the businesses on Redfern Street, to immediately affect and grant some space for Aboriginal people to do whatever they want in the city, uh, in, in the places where they have connection. And, and, and that's something that I think, you know, these are, these are exciting and kind of easy conversations to start in a lot of ways. Like, I like making people uncomfortable. It's good. Like, it's good to get in and it's like, it's good to be in there and have those conversations. And uh, there's kind of an anecdote where I did this a while ago now as like a younger person. There was a club that opened up on this, like down the road from where my old kindergarten was, right? On the block in Redfern. This club opened up and all my friends started playing gigs there, right? And so I was just like, we, I'm just going to pick at this. Like, there's no, there's no... There's no way that this is okay. And, I, and socially, I had to take on the sort of labor of telling people why this was not okay, why, why I had a problem with people going and drinking in, a, in proximity and actively having an uplifting effect in the neighborhood that I grew up in, thus barring Aboriginal people from living there. Um, and that sort of like planted the seed for me in a lot of ways of like how you can really have these conversations. And, it's agitation and it's, it's, it's talking. It's about forming accountability to people as well. I think there's a, it's about asking yourself what, you, what more you could be doing. Like I think that's a really important thing to be constantly sort of framing. If you care about this stuff or you understand that you know, you're taking up space in some capacity, it's interesting to think about what you can do. Uh, and it's sort of exciting in a lot of ways too because like it's going to change and that's going to be fun. Can I ask Libby about the rates thing? So the city of Moreland has a special levy. The Sydney Road Street tra traders pay an extra levy on their rates and it buys car parks. I don't think that's really great public benefit. So I feel like, you know, is there anyone here from local government? <laughs> so I feel like we need to all go and talk to our local government about, you know, what are, what are these special rates? Can you, can you tell us about, like, what are the mechanisms and how we could get a local government to enact that? We don't even have to get them to enact it because it's enacted. <laughs> it's already there. Um, so we just have to go and 
like put it in front of them and say we could do this let's make this happen um but i think this really gets to um uh some i guess more sort of structural questions around um what we're talking about so that uh because I, you know, it strikes me as you're talking, Joel. I'm thinking, it's 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 important that people feel uh, that they can respond in in different kinds of ways and in and in the ways that you're talking about and go talk to local businesses and all that stuff. But if we don't have um, structures in place that hold up the ability to do that kind of work at scale, as you say, then they'll always be prone to, or, well, they'll always be prone to anything anyway, even with the structures in place, but um, but they will certainly be prone to that. So, you know, the classic one, you I think I was mildly triggered by you saying, let's make it cool. And I was like, no, 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 don't fucking do that. Um, <laughs> because coolness, uh, you know, invites, mm. in fact, catalyzes, you know, gentrification and all of those things. So we kind of, at it's like underneath all these conversations, I think, are questions about how we organise our economy, um, to our political economy, to distribute the, in the way that it does um, and who that benefits and who it doesn't and how we might deal with those kinds of things. So I think that does bring us back to questions of, of structure and um, the kind of harder, boring stuff that um, is... is um, a bit less about what uh, perhaps individuals could do or how we could incentivise certain kinds of actions or practices or moments of, of reciprocity um, and instead embed and reorganise structures that, f that require different kinds of relationships of reciprocity. Um, so, you know, the, what the one we're talking about it could be one of those, but I mean, we we could use the planning system, you know, in in really mundane ways like planning benefit. Why is there no, why is there no planning benefit to um, to the people from whose land whose land was stolen to create the very thing that is now enabling us to develop and generate wealth and and do all those things? Um, so I mean, we have we already have systems that organise. The way we do this, so to to hack into, to use your terminology, those those systems, um, I think we need to get much more creative. You know, taxation would be one of those. I mean, what what it, what sits at the heart of a taxation system is the sovereign right to distribute the wealth that is is seen if effectively as a collective, right? That's what taxation is. So if we have um, forms of indigenous political governance like through uh, organisations or community-based organisations or whatever that have no right to tax, then they are um, financially stripped of their sovereignty, in my views, because that you, can't, you, you, can't, you can't be a, a sovereign political authority and not have the right to organise how that wealth is distributed. So we, I think we have to kind of think really differently and kind of structurally about how we make those big shifts. The, the city of Bogota in, in Colombia charges um, like, a, like a value capture tax of 50%. So if, if you've got a site, let's call it Brunswick in uh, Colombia, um, and, and, and that site's worth a million dollars and it's an industrial site, it gets rezoned to commercial. It goes from being worth a million dollars to being worth $4 million. That $3 million, if we're in Colombia, would then half of that would go back to the state for public benefit and half of it would go back to the vendor, the gentleman, to spend on how he sees fit. But wouldn't it be great if we could use that value capture mechanism through the planning mechanism, which needs to be done at the state level or the local government level, to redistribute that wealth to the people that actually own the land? Wouldn't it be great if we had a value capture system that was better than I guess the, the next question really about all of these systems and all the levels that you're talking about is how do you make people value them when they don't understand them? or they don't understand the value that they might bring, or it's not going to directly impact or bring value to them as an individual. Why would people care? Yeah, I, I, from my response to that is um, I think that's our job, I'm speaking as an uninvited guest, um, to, to work on the ways in which we think of ourselves as always in a sovereign relationship, so that that becomes 
so, so that we, we, we stop doing the work of obscuring that which has always been here. So I have always lived on this continent. I have always been in a relationship of sovereignty. I just didn't know it until I you know, grew up and started to realise um, that that's what it was. So, so I think my job is to work within the systems and structures that I understand, like universities and classrooms and planning processes, to rework them to, to be more mindful and less obscuring of that sovereign relationship. And that's really powerful work, I think. How do you get people to care? Yell at them? No. <laughs> no, I, I, for me, for me, I think is, um, it's a, it's a, it's, I, I totally resonate with your point earlier about, um, Translating and translation and conversations. I, I work also quite a bit, or I, majority at the moment now in public radio, community radio as well. Uh, I work a lot in, I, I have a show, or I used to have a show, and, and work a lot around the idea and of communication of these messages between other communities. I'm really focused at the moment. I think for a long time I was sort of hell-bent on collapse in a way, uh, very interested in being critical of the structures that we exist in currently and, and, and doing no work of preparing my community for that eventuation. Because, like, man, if, if it all fell down, like, it would just be everyone. You know, and it's like, so I, I, I became really focused in, an, in, a, in a way to think about where my responsibility was to building a, a community that I cared about. And, and, and it started within media and talking through communication, radio, bilingual radio. I'm working on a lot of projects now with translation. It is literally translation. I'm talking to community broadcasters about what sovereignty means to them, facilitating opportunities for them to translate those messages into their own languages with their families, with their communities, to build solidarity around these conversations and then broadcast it, have that live out in the world and communicate. You know, it's, it's a cultural endeavour. What we're doing as a, whole, as a bunch of levels is, is lots. So I, I feel like for me it's communication. I think I've, I've really learnt the power in that and for me it's just something that I find really interesting and I think... I like to talk a lot, so it's like pretty good. Yeah. Jeremy, how do you make people care? I think people generally care. Does anyone here care? You're all here in the cold. So people care. Um, I think okay, I, rephrase. I, how yeah. do you make people who don't care care? No, I, I, you don't. Okay. So I don't, I don't think you know. I, I don't. I don't waste my time engaging with the 51% of people that voted at the last fe federal election. I, I, I instead engage with the 49% that voted in the way that kind of, you know, that I think shows that they care about the planet and the people that exist here. So, you know, I choose my battles and I try to win where I can and then we try to scale from that. So we, we just start small. But also, I'm sorry, but, I'm going into But I think also with the opening, it's like, it's all connected, right? So it's like, if they don't care about the one thing, it's, it's in close proximity to something that I think they do care about, right? But like, that's, in, okay, there's that's no like climate justice without Indigenous justice. Like, these yeah. conversations are connected ones. It's, you, you're not fighting these fights alone. And it, it, sometimes it takes these moments of, you know, like terrifying collapse to to make you realize that these things are connected you know and, and that's what i see as the work and as i've done more and more stuff trying to convince people who i thought didn't care like i literally thought people didn't care about this stuff and then you're like well no it's actually just because it's not being verbalized in the right way or it's sitting adjacent to another thing that is really your basic needs and how are those connected and that's the job it's translating you know so there's that reciprocity there but then there's also the carrot the stick right we're dealing in a system that's a planning system it's regulatory we have to follow the rules in order to get something done and then on the other end of it we're dealing with an award system that are where a bunch of our peers decide what good architecture is and not necessarily by metrics that deserve 
to give those awards. Um, I don't mean the people, I just mean how they, what are they? What are the rules? What are their requirements for those awards? Because there's certainly a lot of Indigenous buildings, for example, that have been awarded prizes that definitely shouldn't have if there was a question about the engagement process or if there was a question about how this positively impacted Indigenous people. How has it been reciprocal to Indigenous people that are the traditional owners of that place? Um, so it's interesting then, like in an, and I'm just trying to like wingle this back, wingle, new word, wingle this back to the, the climate action post because what you were talking about, in effect, there's a carrot and a stick in that because you send it to a whole bunch of people, like to all these different architecture practices to get them to go carbon neutral. We're back here, sorry. Um, and in it, there's the people who care and the people who go, oh, okay, it's not that hard, whatever. There's the next lot of people who go, okay, it's going to cost me a little bit more money, um, but I'm willing to give that up. I'm willing to give up that privilege of having that money in order to do something that's good for the environment. And then there's a bunch of other people going, okay, well, I mean, everybody else is doing it and we don't want to look shit, so we're just going to do it too. So there's like this scale of, of impact where you're, you're getting everyone on board, even if they don't care. The carrot and the stick. And so... That's really my question, is because in that, there's always a way to make people who don't care get on board, but usually it's give them, make them feel good about themselves. And how, do, how can the planning system do that? Oh, I don't like shame, though. Like, there's, yeah. It's how accountability works, though, in a lot of senses. Yeah. You know, like think, yeah. But how does the planning system do that? Can I, can I just say that I think the answer to that is it's about mainstream. Mm. So it's about making an idea that historically, you know, you know, in the in the 80s and 90s, pay the rent was seen as, as this radical idea, you know. It's crazy, right? Why would you pay the traditional owners, the people that own this land, why would you pay them for their land? Um, but you think through that, it's not radical, right? It actually makes common sense, particularly within the system that we operate in, right? You want something, you pay for it. Um, so the whole idea of this, it's not necessarily carrot and a stick, but you're absolutely right, there'll be a tipping point at which more architects are carbon neutral than aren't, and so if you're not one of those architects that are carbon neutral, then you'll be seen as a pariah, not necessarily, I don't know whether it's shame, maybe it's a little bit of shame, but I think that, you know, there will definitely be a feeling that I need to be part of that and it will cost you work. Can I add to that? Because yep. I want to kind of, I agree, agree at some level, but I also want to problematise that a bit because I'm Thanks, and who I am. Um, <laughs> you know, social science academic... We like problematizing things. Um, because I think there is a kind of a... Like there is a danger in if you just put... It's like, you know, carbon. If you, you put a dollar figure on it and you create a market out of it, then you've commodified it and you've got a new level of fuckwittery kind of going on, right? Um, so there's a similar kind of logic to what unfolds um, when we rest things on, on, on the mainstreaming albeit a very good idea, I'm not poo-pooing it, because I would like to see that happen too. Um, because it, it then, I think, invites a certain kind of politics and practice, um, particularly by um, uh, white folk and non-Indigenous folk, um, and that is around the feel-good factor of, which is just a massive deflection of, I can feel good because I paid the rent or I did my thing um, or my company is doing this or my university has, you know, done X and got some, you know, marvellous flag out the front or, you know, Aboriginal art on the bins or whatever it is, um, and thus I feel better about my own role in this work. Now, there's... I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with feeling better. Um, it's probably a good thing. But if we stop there, if we put a little full stop there and never move out of that deflection, then we just re-perpetuate um, exactly this, this dynamic um, that, that we're living in. So, so I guess one question is how do we do... The, so here, I'm becoming the facilitator now. How do we do that work of the mainstreaming and not let the mainstreaming rest in the mainstreaming? What? Just keep kind of... Yeah, I spoke about this earlier today, sort of, uh, that heard about this earlier today, having conversation, and sort of the, the, the operation of the colonial system is, is, is uh, you know, there's a, there is a kind of constant recuperation of the indigeneity as a kind of, as a process, as, 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 a, as a sort of, look, let's, let's, they still exist, like, let's engage in it, and, and sort of it kind of propels the system further to continue to open up new, and that, I mean, that's like, I think, 
the main issue, right? It's like you open up new markets. And a new market it can be inherently problematic and will we'll swing that way, usually prone by scarcity and other things, right? And, and like that's where we're at at the moment with most things. I, I think that that's a really interesting point when you think, also just like psych, like I think mentally, right? When people feel satisfied. It's, um, it's, it's, it, it feeds something that I think creates like a sort of a passive approach to a lot of this stuff. And that's probably was like the main thing that I had most issue with hearing about kind of the pay the rent model going into Nightingale as well as like, well, like one, that, that sum is, yeah, it's a sum, right? And, and you've decided to make a point with that, but what is that facilitating in the community, right? Everyone now knows that they're cool and they pay the rent. So, like, why would, you know, the fuck shit that they said at the dinner table... No, well, they're not because they're because cool. They paid, they paid for it. You know, and it's... Well, it's about guilt. What you're talking about is minimising your own guilt or mitigating your own guilt. Yeah. I think that, that, you know, look, as a white guy, you know, I've got some guilt. Perhaps when... I start to take a step in the right direction. I feel a little bit less guilty and I start to feel a little bit less um, uh, paralysed by that guilt. You know, and it's like every... It's, it's, like, it's like stepping through a doorway, you know, and so, you know, perhaps no one wants to discuss this idea of change the date, you know, or that 51% of people don't want to discuss that because, well, I mean, they won't even entertain it, right? It's a fucking day in a calendar. You know, remember, time doesn't exist. You know, um, but perhaps if they take that first step on the way through and they start dealing with, the, you know, the very first bit of guilt that exists, perhaps then it's easier to engage in a broader conversation. All I'm saying is that I think that the great thing about the mainstream is that if we can get there, people stop questioning its validity. They accept that it is the paradigm. Times exist. Let's all exist. That, that, let's, all, let's all say that time's a thing and we're all going to be part of that. And then from there, you can actually start to make meaningful steps forward. So I feel like you've just, you know, as imperfect as it is, we've got to make it simple. Thanks, guys. We're not going to get into a conversation about white fragility and all that sort of stuff now. Um, but thank you for sharing this time with us. And thank you to Beautiful Country for showing up as well. Um, in all of its manners. But yeah, um, thanks for coming, guys. Hope you enjoyed. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.